Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Even though Jesus was fully God, he completely laid down his divinity when he was on this earth, completely, so that he could be fully human. Hello, dear ones. My name is Justin Peters. I hope that this finds you and your family doing well today. I want to thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. That was a shocking video, was it not? Robert Morris is the pastor of Gateway Church in South Lake, Texas, in the Dallas area. Uh, Robert Morris is Word of Faith. Uh, in fact, he is New Apostolic Reformation. Shayon is one of the leaders in the New Apostolic Reformation. He's good friends with Bill Johnson, who is NAR. And uh, Shayon says this of Robert Morris. He says, Even Robert Morris from Gateway Church in Dallas, Texas, has started an apostolic network with Jimmy Evans called the Gateway Apostolic Network. I'm just scratching the surface. I'm just giving you some of the networks here in the United States. These five amazing moves of the New Apostolic Reformation support my conclusion that apostles are for today and that God is restarting his church government. Todd White has been uh, one of the prominent leaders. In fact, for a while, I believe he's even called an apostle there at Gateway Church. But Robert Morris flies in under the radar in ways that, say, a Benny Hinn or a Kenneth Copeland, some of these more flamboyant word faith prosperity preachers do not. He's more normal looking, kind of more low keyed. Um, but make no mistake about it, he is every bit the heretic, as is Kenneth Copeland. And But because he is more normal looking, uh, that makes him even more dangerous in many ways than a Kenneth Copeland. And um, so I'm going to show several clips from that sermon uh, from which you just heard. But I'm also going to enlist the assistance of my friend, Dr. Mike Riccardi. I've interviewed Mike before on this channel, but Mike is an elder at Grace Community Church. He earned his Master Divinity, Master of Theology, and PhD from the Master Seminary. Serves alongside Phil Johnson as co-pastor of Grace Life there at Grace Community Church, and he's also pastor of local outreach ministries and does evangelism. One of the things I appreciate about Mike is that he is not only one of, uh, in my opinion, one of the more able theologians that we have today, but he he puts feet to his faith, and he goes out into the community, community, he evangelizes, goes to jails, and does ministry there in the jails, witnesses to the inmates, and shares the gospel with them. So, um, he's just a really good guy, but he has written on this issue of Jesus emptying himself, uh, kenosis, uh, as you just heard Robert Morris say, laying aside his divinity. Dear friends, these are very serious issues. And so uh, this is going to be a fairly long video, as you can probably already tell from the timestamp. Uh, but I do encourage you to watch this. Because Robert Morris is so extraordinarily popular, but he's extraordinarily dangerous. So please um, watch this. I'll have clips of Robert Morris sprinkled throughout, and Mike Riccardi will give us his 
uh, thoughts and evaluation on uh, what we are hearing. Send this to your friends. Send this to your family members uh, because he is very, very popular and very dangerous. Okay, all the pertinent links to Mike Riccardi's resources, and he has a number of them down below there in the description. All right, dear friends, without any further delay, here is my interview with Mike Riccardi. All right, Mike, brother, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Uh, doing well, brother. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to see you and talk with you. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure, honor to have you on the program and uh, got really good feedback from our last interview that we did. And uh, so it's an honor to have you back on with us. So, um, so Mike, I've sent you the video clip. This is Robert Morris. He is pastor of Gateway Church in South Lake, Texas, in the Dallas area. Uh, Robert Morris is one of these guys that kind of flies in under the radar, whereas a lot of people will pick up on the obvious problems with uh, Kenneth Copeland, uh, even Bill Johnson. Robert Morris, not so much. He's one of these guys. He's more normal looking. He's more um, kind of a, um, a subdued personality, I suppose, not as flamboyant as a lot of these folks. But what I heard in this sermon and preached on Resurrection Sunday, by the way, Easter Sunday, of this year, 2023, uh, Christologically speaking, dealing with the doctrine of Christ, Christology, it is as bad as anything I have ever heard from Kenneth Copeland or Bill Johnson. And it deals with kenosis. And I wanted to have you on the program, Mike, because you have written on this. And I will have a link down below in the description to the article that, um, well, it's more than an article. It's an, what would you call it? Journal entry essay uh, on kenosis that deals with this specifically. So before we get going or as we get going, can you define for us kenosis? What does that mean? Yeah. So, I mean, kenosis just means emptying and it's, it comes from the, the Greek term kenao, the verb kenao, which Paul uses in Philippians 2, 7 which is often translated, uh, but he emptied himself. And it, it's uh, referring to the, the humiliation of Christ, wherein he, you know, as God uh, and fully God from all eternity, um, the King James says something like, make him, makes himself of no effect or makes himself of no reputation by becoming a man by adding the, the human nature or assuming maybe better said the human nature into personal unity with his divine nature being born in the likeness of men um, and being found in appearance as a man. So it, it's the idea that he has, I think, I think sometimes wrongly something that goes along with, with that idea is that it, it speaks of that, which the son gave up, um, in, in that, that which he emptied himself of. And I think neither of those uh, concepts are inherent in the language, but kenosis really refers to the incarnation of God the Son, whereby he humbly uh, did not insist upon his rights to remain in perfect, flawless, uh, you know, manifest worship of the saints and angels in heaven, and instead took on a human nature with all its frailties apart from sin and uh, lived as a man among us. Okay. All right. Okay. So with that 
definitional groundwork laid, uh, we are going to listen to this clip taken from this sermon. Now, I will say in fairness, uh, earlier in this sermon, Robert Morris did affirm the virgin birth. Uh, he did affirm uh, the deity of Christ, uh, referring to him as the son of God. Um, but what he gives with one hand, he takes away with the other. So let us begin here. Mike, I'm just going to, I'm just going to play this. And when you're, <laughs> when you've had enough, or you think it's a good point to stop, let me know. We'll stop and, and you can discuss. All right. Sure. Okay. Here we go. Emmanuel means God with us. But I want to give you a little, a surprising fact that is literally Theology 101. I mean, this isn't Theology 201 or 301 or 401. This is 101. But a lot of people don't realize this. Even Okay, I'm going to stop it myself right there because what he's about to say, he's saying this is ground-level theology, Theology 101. So if you don't understand this, you really don't understand Christ. So this is uh, ground-level stuff. Okay, keep going. Even though Jesus was fully God, he completely laid down his divinity when he was on this earth. Completely. So that he could be fully human. Okay, stop it there. Okay. So, even though Jesus was fully God, what I've expected that means is that even though God the Son was fully God before the incarnation, when he became Jesus of Nazareth, when he was born of a woman and lived on this earth, there he laid, he completely laid aside his divinity. So um, that seems to me, and I, maybe I, I could be wrong, but that seems to me to be saying that Jesus was only God before he was human mm -hmm. and, and not while he was human. Right. I mean, I, I don't know if there's another way to take that, but uh, certainly we would expect better. If he didn't mean that, we would expect better precision from a minister of the gospel or a pastor preaching in, in any in any place than than to let that be ambiguous. Jesus, that the God, the Son, uh, existing as the second person of the Trinity from all eternity, was indeed God, and then when this one became man in the person of the, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he laid aside his divinity, by which I can't understand anything other than he, he was fully God and then he wasn't. I mean, I don't know if he means to distinguish between God, like he was still fully God and he laid aside his divinity. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what that would mean. So right. it sounds to me like he was God and then he wasn't, which, you know, first of all, is an absolute utter impossibility, right? It is not possible for God Stop to it. ever not be God. Right. Uh, that's part of what it means to be immutable. That's part of what it means to be uh, self-existent. That's part of what it means to be um, ase, right? Like the yes of himself and have his own self-existence. So, I mean, even if it was just immutability, right? We all affirm that I, the Lord, do not change, right? Malachi uh, says, or God says in Malachi. And if if that's so, then God can never not be God. He can never go from a state of being God to not being God. And if Jesus, if the second person of the Trinity is God and then not, then he was never God because that God was capable of change. 
And our God, the God of the Bible, is not capable of change. So so right away, you just have a, a logical and theological impossibility. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so it's 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 kind of mystifying, but I guess that so that that's I guess maybe my my first comment. Right. Okay. Yeah. And he said he completely laid aside his divinity completely. He, in fact, he emphasized that twice. He used that word twice, completely twice, for emphasis. And um, I don't know how you could say that any more than you and I could say we well we we completely lay aside our humanity. Right. And, and, the, and the way that he said and the reason that he says it was so, there so that he could be fully human. So what you have there is you have an assumption at, at play in this man's thinking that he, that it is impossible for someone to be fully God and not laying aside one's divinity and at the same time being fully human. And that is simply a uh, an assumption that is unwarranted by Scripture. That that is a tacit denial of the possibility of a hypostatic union. And I grant that the hypostatic union of the the two natures of of Christ, God and man, you know, united in the single person. I grant that that is a a mystery and a miracle beyond everything in our ability as humans to conceive. Right? How is it? that one can be both God who is infinite and human who as, and fi- therefore finite at the same time in the same person. Um, it, it, is a, it is a mystery. And nevertheless, it is the consistent confession of the entire church throughout history uh, as, as codified in the Council of Chalcedon, Chalcedon in 451 AD. Um, but, but it's also the, the manifest teaching of the scriptures, right? The, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, right? So, so the son is God, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us, not transmuted into flesh, right? Um, yeah. but, but added a human nature in addition to his uh, divine nature. And again, I, I keep using the term added, and I don't mean it differently than the term assumed, right? He, he took on to himself uh, a, a human nature but in, in no way uh, diminishing or abridging the realities of his divine nature. Um, you know, my, when Thomas says, my Lord and my God, Jesus doesn't say, well, I was, <laughs> but I laid right. that aside, right? right. Uh, no, indeed. And, and we'll talk more uh, about all of this. But when John even says, and we, be, you know, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, what does it mean for the Son to be only begotten Son of the Father? It, it doesn't mean to be the one who is, you know, begotten in the virgin's womb or conceived in the virgin's womb and born as a man. Only begotten refers to the eternal generation of the Son, where in this another lofty, ineffable, mysterious act, right? There is this, this self-differentiating act between the persons of the Trinity, wherein the Father becomes the Father of the Son, which, which is not in time, which is not in a moment. That's why they call it eternal generation. It, wow. it, it was always the case that the Father was, was siring the Son, was, was uh, generating the personal subsistence of the Son, that he was putting the Son into possession of the full, undivided divine essence, 
than this eternal communication of of god of godness right it's just it's just this amazing thing the only one who could be the begotten son of god must be god himself just like if i'm the begot if i'm begotten of my father i get my nature from him right that's why the pharisees say you know when they go to stone him, Jesus says, for what good work are you stoning me? And he yeah. said, and they say, for good work, we don't stone you, but you're, you're calling yourself the son of God, making yourself equal with God. So huh. sonship or begottenness is not um, a title of subordination or submission or obedience. It's a title of sameness of stock um, as well as differentiation. So the, the son is not the father. Um, you can say it this way. The son is not who the father is, but the son is what the father is. His person is distinct, but his essence is entirely um, identical. So if John says we beheld the glory of the only begotten son of God, therefore God himself, then the, the glory that they beheld wasn't one, you know, uh, of somebody who laid aside his divinity. What glory does anybody have who is is not God? The only glory there is belongs to God. And, and for them to say, we saw this, and in particular, John will then say in the next chapter, uh, in John chapter 2, verse 11, right, uh, as he turns the water into wine at the wedding at Cana, um, thus he manifested his glory there, and his disciples believed in him. So the, the working of that miracle uh, is the manifestation of of the glory of the only begotten Son. John says, we saw that glory manifest in his divine works, um, and therefore he is God. And so the notion that it's impossible to be God and man at the same time with the properties of both natures being unabridged, not mixing, but nevertheless united in one person, you know, that's just that's that's what the bible teaches and it's the it's the christianity 101 assumption of everybody who names the name of christ at the very least since 451 but of course since well before that as well yes indeed indeed okay all right ready to keep going yeah okay if you want to know how he did the miracles that he did the bible tells us he did them by the power of the Holy Spirit and his personal relationship with the Father. That's how he walked on the water. That's how he opened blind eyes. You know what that does for me? It gives me hope. Okay, stop there. Okay. So th that is sort of the, I was foreshadowing this in my reference to John 1.14 and 2.11. I, I understand the view that says, you know, Jesus so divested himself of divinity or divine privileges or divine prerogatives that um, he did not act upon his native divine power as son to do those works which are manifestly divine. He was sort of emptied down to nothing other than a human like you or me, but then like Moses worked miracles or like Elijah worked miracles, the son was full of the spirit without measure and by the power of the spirit, he did his miracles. And, 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 you know, that's, that's partially true. I believe it's Matthew 12, um, 20, uh, 28, you know, uh, if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God 
has come upon you. So it is true that the man Christ Jesus was full of the Spirit and that he worked by the power of that Spirit according to his humanity. But just as Scripture attributes the working of divine miracles um, to the Spirit of God, you know, upon Christ or in Christ, there are other passages which attribute the divine miracles to his, his native power as the divine son, like the one that I just mentioned. Yeah. So you have in John 1, 14, John saying, we beheld a glory in this one that wasn't like uh, the great prophet Moses or the great prophet Elijah. Right. We, behold, we beheld in this one glory as of the only begotten of the father, of the divine son. And, and, that term glory, right, is is used then the next time, in, in just a chapter later in John chapter 2, verse 11, where Jesus turns the water into wine at the, at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. And and it says in that in that verse, and I'll, I'll pop in the verse just so that I don't mess it up. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and you can remember, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, and his disciples believed in him. So what you have there is a miracle manifesting divine glory, which is not the glory of the only preceding one from the Father and the Son, right? That's what you would need to hear if it was from the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, eternally precedes from both the father and the son that's what that's his uh, eternal relation um in the in the trinity but the son is eternally begotten from the father and so if you were expecting the grounding for jesus divine miracle of turning the water into the into wine to say yeah it was divine there was glory in it because the spirit was working in him you would you would expect to have heard you know the glory is of the only one preceding from the Father and the Son, not as the glory of the only begotten from the Father. And so, again, a small amount of time removed, 114 to 211, uh, the next instance of the term glory, it's plainly putting the spotlight on Jesus' deity. And then it's saying that it's a sign that reveals glory and that and which revelation of glory becomes the basis or the ground for the disciples' faith saving faith in him right you know none of moses miracles was to be a ground of faith in moses right. uh, none of elijah's miracles was to generate you know faith in elijah doesn't say they nobody says they believed in elijah they believed in elijah's god right yes so G right. if jesus is not fully god if he is if he has laid aside his deity and this is just the spirit working through him then, uh, you know, upon what basis do the disciples believe in him uh, to, to be the divine savior, the son of man of Daniel 7, uh, who is coming on the clouds and who's, you know, the, who's, the, the, who's Yahweh himself, um, Malachi 3, the messenger of the covenant and so on. Um, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, right, who is this one who is David's Lord, right? This is yeah. somebody who must be Yahweh. Right. Upon what basis can the disciples believe this one to be Yahweh because of the divine glory that is miracle manifested and not believe that Moses was a divine person or Elijah was a divine person? 
if they were just spirit-filled men, and, you know, why is the reaction to their miracles, well, believe their God, and the reaction to Jesus' miracles, believe in him as God. Yes. It doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. The, the right. Bible does speak of both, and, and here's, here's a key piece. This really is theology 101. It's something called the, the communication of the properties. So that refers to the fact that when we say that Jesus is fully God, fully man, hypostatic union of both divine and human natures concurring in the one person without confusion, without separation, without change, without division. What we're saying there is Jesus is not less God because he's man, nor less man because he's God. He doesn't divinize his humanity and he does not humanize his deity. Two whole perfect and distinct natures concurring in one person without mixture. And therefore, what you're going to get is you're going to get statements about Jesus that are predicated of his humanity in some cases and of his deity in in other cases. So, for example, in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, Paul tells the Ephesian elders at Miletus in his farewell address to them, uh, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The church of God, which he, God, purchased with his, God's own blood. You say, no, wait a second there. God is uh, an eternal spirit. He is, he is without body, parts, or passions. He is incorporeal. God has no blood, right? right? So what in the world God purchased the church with his own blood? Well, it's true to say that the, the God, that God, uh, qua God, has no blood. But when you consider that Jesus is God and that Jesus is man and so has blood, Right. You recognize what Paul's doing there. He's making a predication about the one person, Jesus, at first according to his deity, he is God, and then according to his humanity, he has blood. Yes. So when so the fact that those two things can exist together undermines this preacher's statement that in or, he had to lay aside his divinity in order to be fully human. Even though Jesus was fully God... He completely laid down his divinity when he was on this earth. Completely. So that he could be fully human. No, only fully human people have blood. And right. that one who had blood was also fully God. So, right. so what happens is Scripture will sometimes speak of the Son according to his humanity sometimes speak of the Son according to his deity, and sometimes speak of him according to both. Another example of that is in 1 Corinthians 2.8, where it says, you know, if they had known this, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Well, crucifixion cannot happen to the Lord of glory, right? God can't die. Right. Right. But Jesus is the Lord of glory because he's God, and he can be crucified because he's man. So what's happening in Matthew 12.28 when, when it's speaking of Jesus doing miracles by the power of the Spirit, is it's making a predication according to his humanity. And then, but then what's happening in John 2.11 and John 1.14 is that it's making a predication according to his deity. Yes. So we ought not to say Jesus either did his miracles by his native power as divine son or by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ought to say both, that Jesus, according to his deity, effected his miracles by the power his native power as divine son and 
according to his humanity, he worked them by the power of the Spirit. It's not either or, it's both and. Both and. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. Let's continue with Pastor Morris. And let me just prove it to you in Scripture. Philippians 2 verse 7 says, He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And hey, stop there. Okay. So, I mean, that that is just a horrendous translation of Scripture. That's the um, new living. New living. I was going to say, yeah. I don't know what he's using there, but I, I don't know. What that, I mean, that, that is that is interpretation more than than translation. I mean, I understand that there's always a degree of interpretation in translation because languages aren't one to one. But um, you know, that that's taking some liberties that belong in a in a Bible commentary, not in your Bible purporting to be the very words of God. Philippians right. two seven does not say he gave up his divine privileges. My goodness, it says, but he emptied himself. So Philippians two six. Christ, or, you know, have this attitude in yourselves, verse 5, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though existing in the form of God, in the very nature of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but, here's 2-7, but emptied himself, Allah heyutan ekenosen, right? So, that is not gave up his divine privileges. Yeah. Now, the, the, this involves us in a study of the verb kanao and how it's used. Interestingly, the, wherever the term, so the, the, I guess I'm trying to figure out what not to, what not to say, uh, what to leave out. I think the basic thought is when we hear the term emptied, we often think of, okay, I've got this vessel here and it's full of something and I'm going to pour it out and I'm going to empty it. That is not this word kanao. Uh, there is a word in the New Testament that is is used for that kind of thing and it's the verb ekeo and it's used i think it's romans 4 14 right so it, paul is talking about um abraham and and circumcision versus righteousness faith before circumcision the you know abraham was justified before there was a law and so therefore circumcision is not necessary and he and he says in romans 4 14 for if those who are of the law are heirs faith is made void and the promise is nullified. Faith is emptied, kekenotai. Okay, same word, just a different grammatical conjugation. So when, when we read that, we don't think, okay, of what was faith emptied? Like, if faith right. is made void and the promise is nullified. The point isn't that something was, there was faith that was a vessel and something was poured out of faith. Right, right. Um, so that's not ekeo. That's can, that's that's the other version of kanao. Um, what what am I thinking of ekeo? Oh, in Romans five five. That's right. I knew it was in Romans. Um, as opposed to Romans five five, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So there's the verb ekeo, uh, referring to the idea of the love of God shed abroad or poured out into our hearts. Uh -huh. But kanao is, is not that verb. Kanao does what I just mentioned in Romans 4.14. It speaks of to make void, to nullify, to make of none effect. And again, that's, that is how the King James uh, translates it, you know, but made himself of no reputation. That's a bit of a freer uh, translation as well, 
but is it, it captures the sense, the proper sense of the verb kenao. Wherever the verb kenao is used in the New Testament, it's used in that figurative sense of nullifying oneself. So, uh-huh. it, so the, the text does not say that Jesus emptied himself of something. It does not say he poured something out of himself. Notice right. the direct object of the verb ekenosen is the, the word heautan, himself. Jesus didn't empty himself of something. He emptied himself. He so. nullified himself. He made himself of no effect. He, 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 he uh, embraced shame as opposed to glory, as opposed to manifest worship of saints and angels in heaven. And the question is, what was that? How did he do that? By what act did he, did he nullify himself? And the answer is, in the, in the next uh, words, right, morphine dulu labon, taking the form of a slave. He, that, that labon, that's a participle, and, that mean, and it's a participle of means, okay? He emptied himself how? by taking the nature of a bond servant, assuming to himself the nature of a, of a human being uh, being made in the likeness of men, being born uh, as, a, as a human being. Uh-huh. So, so th- that is just a fundamental uh, mistranslation, misunderstanding of the grammar of the New Testament text. It's an interpretation that is not warranted. It, it, you could say he laid aside his privileges or gave up his privileges only in the sense that the son deserved to never deserved to know what it was to feel hungry. He never knew what it was right. to feel sadness or sorrow. He didn't deserve that. Right. He didn't deserve to certainly didn't deserve to have you know people spit in his face or whip him or beat him or accuse him of falsehood and betrayal or be betrayed. Right. These are all things that he experienced as a result of uniting humanity to his deity and living living as a man to accomplish our salvation and pay for our sins. Um, right. the, the, you could say, therefore, he laid aside those privileges. But um, it, it's not the case that he laid aside his deity. I mean, for crying out loud, um, Colossians, you know, uh, one, I think it's 16 says, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by through him and for him. He is before all things, verse 17, and in him all things hold together. That, that's something that is true of the divine son as divine son. And so if he, if he is holding all things together by virtue of his deity, right, Hebrews 1, 3, he sustains all things or upholds all things by the word of his power right right? well well does he stop doing that when he becomes man no that would be to stop being god and god can't stop being god so that means at the same time as the that god the son is a weeping baby in the arms of mary sustained by the nutrients of her own body he is at that same moment, according to his deity, sustaining Mary, right. such that if he doesn't give the word, she disintegrates into nothing. He exactly. upholds all things by the word of his power. Exactly. So uh, the, the not those divine privileges. He hasn't laid, uh, laid aside the divine privileges of actually being God, 
he's he's laid aside perhaps you could say the the, the privilege of being unencumbered by uh, the assumption of a human nature into unity with his divine nature yeah okay what an awesome god we serve amen okay all right let's continue then to prove to show you how he did miracles, watch this, Acts 10, 38. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then, after he was anointed, Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Even though he was God, he laid down his Godhead. So... I mean, again, I think this is an example of taking a predication about the human nature of Jesus and then absolutizing it and, and leaving no room for the, the predications of Jesus according to his Godhead. It, it, again, is to assume that since he's man, he can't be God. Right. And, and, and we, we've t- I've talked about this already. Later on in the book of Acts, um, Paul is going to say the church of God with his, you know, bought, you know shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And so you've got predications of both. So yeah, yes, I think that you can speak. So we know that we're talking about Jesus according to his human nature here. Uh, he's called Jesus of Nazareth. Um, yes, he, God did anoint him with the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit of God was in the Son of God, you know, without measure, uh, other right. texts say. And uh Yes, he, he went about and doing his miracles uh, because because God was with him. But but that that is it's, that's only to say that that's a predication of his human nature, and he was more than his human nature when he became incarnate. As an example, you know, divine attributes are still predicated of Jesus the man. So if Jesus laid aside his deity, we would expect that divine attributes not be predicated of him during that time but for example in john 16 30 um peter says to jesus or is it his disciples generally who say to jesus now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you by this we believe that you came from god so i understand that's the confession of the disciples right but he, he just didn't correct doesn't him. rebuke him. He doesn't say, "Oh no, no, you misunderstood." I don't know everything now. Hang on. Right. Exactly. So exactly. we know that you know all things, and and you know, no matter how spirit filled Moses or Elijah was, they didn't know all things. No matter how spirit filled you or I might get, we we won't know all things. Right. Omniscience is an attribute of deity, and that is predicated of Christ Himself. When yes. Jesus is, you know, reads the thoughts of the Pharisees who are reasoning in their hearts, saying, who does this man think he is saying to this guy over here, his sins are forgiven? I think it's Luke yes. chapter five. Mm-hmm. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right. So Jesus reads their minds, you know, in a display of omniscience. Right. And then says, you know, I mean, again, with, by, by not rebuking them, by not saying, no, 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 listen, when I say I forgive his sins, I'm only acting as sort of a mediator, you know, a prophet of yes. God, a priest of God. It, you know, God, you're right. God alone can forgive sins. None of that. Right. Just kind of looking at him going, yep, right. Only God can forgive sins. And right. that's what I'm doing. Right. So the, Jesus is is saying he's taking to himself even not just attributes, omniscience, 
but prerogatives. This yes. one, this one forgives sins um, of deity. Sometimes right. you hear people in a scaled down version of this. So what, 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 what this pastor is espousing is what's called ontological kenoticism. So kenotic Christology, ontological, that is having to do with the essence. Jesus lays aside the essence of deity. Yes. But sometimes even within evangelical circles, you hear of functional kenoticism and people will say, oh, he gave up his divine prerogatives. Well, not that one, right? Not the prerogative, as we said before, of sustaining the cosmos, not the prerogative of forgiving sin, uh, not the prerogative of laying down his life of his own accord and taking it up again, right? These are all manifestations of yeah. the prerogatives of deity. So uh, to say, oh, Acts 10, 38, says he went about in the power of the spirit. Yes, nobody is saying that because he's God, he isn't man and didn't go in the power of the spirit. Right. It is to say that in addition to his going about in the power of the spirit, according to his humanity, these other predications of Jesus in the same New Testament require us to, to say uh, that those things are predicated of his deity and that the one doesn't rule out the other. He is fully God and fully man, 100% at the same time, perfect in godhood and perfect in manhood. Right. One person, two natures, two distinct natures in one person. Okay. All right. Let's continue here. Divinity. He became a human. This encourages me, but it also causes me to respond to the message I shared two weeks ago where we need the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And to ask you this question, if Jesus himself needed to be anointed by the Holy Spirit to live as a human in this fallen world, how much more do you and I need the, the anointing of the Holy Spirit? And you can stop there. Yeah, of itself, right? I don't disagree. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do you and I need to pray? If Jesus needed to retire uh, to be alone with his father and, med and, and meditate on the truth of scripture and, to, you know, um, how much more do you and I, if Jesus himself combated the, the temptations of Satan in Matthew and Luke 4 with it is written, it is written, it is written, how much more ought you and I have scripture at, at our fingertips to battle the temptations of Satan? Amen. Jesus was indeed fully human. And, and so, yeah, he was the one anointed with the spirit beyond measure. And therefore, I must seek, you know, that very same anointing of the spirit. But understand what that anointing of the spirit is for, for us. Right. Romans 8, 9. If anyone belongs to does not belong to Christ or let's just let's let me not butcher it. Right. Romans 8, verse 9. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him, which means if you do belong to Christ, you do have the spirit of God. First John 2 speaks of the anointing that you have all received, the spirit of God who dwells in you, such that we need no one to teach us uh, like a, a sort of an elitist um, Gnostic level sort of right. elite teacher. Um, no, we have the spirit in us that, that testifies to the truth uh, that he himself has inspired in his own word. So, yeah, I, I want to seek the anointing of the Spirit, but I only get that in Jesus. And so if I'm to get the Spirit, I must believe in the, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I do, I'm baptized, you know, into the, the, the Holy, or by the Holy Spirit of God into Christ and sealed with, with him or in him, Ephesians 1.13, um, with the Holy Spirit of promise. So... Uh, in principle, I don't disagree with that notion, given that Jesus is human and needed the spirit of God. 
And given that we are human and lesser than Jesus uh, in, in so many ways, and the fact that we are sinful and he's not, if he, if he needed the spirit to anoint him, so do we. Agreed. Mm-hmm. But Jesus is not just human, and therefore he is divine son by nature and is acting in the attributes and prerogatives of divinity all throughout his incarnation. And um, that is not us. And, and not only that, but, you know, in demonstrating that he is king. So a lot of this is going to get used to then say, well, since Jesus was no more than a man and you're no more than a man, we can do the same kinds of things that Jesus can do if That's indeed right. we're full of the spirit and all these sorts of things. And then they make full of the spirit, not a fact of Christian conversion that's common to all believers, which is, right. but they, they make it at this subsequent, you know, yes. uh, experience that is manifest, manifest in speaking in tongues and all these things. And so it, it, it tells us to seek something that we don't have and shames us that if we can't do the kind of miracles that Jesus is doing, raising the dead and all these things, that therefore we must not be filled with the spirit and we're a second right. class Christian. That is demonic, right? That is the very thing that Satan, the accuser of the brethren, would love to do for people is to hamstring them in this hamster wheel of introspection and looking to myself as to why is it that I can't get the spirit and do these miracles like the God man did. Uh, There must be something wrong with me. And oh, if I listen to this teacher or send him money, you know, maybe I'll get that spirit or something like that. It is demonic to make a precious sheep of Christ's flock think that he is less than because he can't do something that God has not given him to do, right? Jesus is the unique Messiah, the king, who brings the kingdom with him and and therefore must indeed display these unique works of God alone to say, I am the one, the coming one, the one who was to come into the world, the promised Messiah. I am the one, you know, who who was uh, going to finish transgression and seal up prophecy, right? Like, this is me. If I showed up and started saying that I'm Jesus, you know, and I'm and I can't do anything about the sick and I can't do anything about the lame and I can't do anything about the dead, you'd have very good reason not to believe me. Right. But he's the one who needs to to demonstrate by his works that he is the divine Messiah. So so laying upon the, the shoulders, a burden of if you don't do the works that are unique to the divine son. Therefore, you must not have enough of the spirit, and that's due to your own fault. You know, th- that, is the, that is the perfect kind of stratagem that our enemy would love to, to lay upon us, that burden that, that, does, that steals the freedom, the blood-bought freedom yes. of Christ's righteousness and acceptance yes. and adoption by the Father um, and turn us in on ourselves rather than looking outside of ourselves to our Savior, who is all of our righteousness. Amen. Amen. It is indeed this endless hamster wheel. They, they demote God and deify man. And if you don't perform and and they don't themselves perform the same signs and wonders that Jesus did, they don't turn water into wine, despite some of their claims. Um, Okay. I'll digress. Everybody who knows you knows that, right? (laughs) Oh yeah. Everybody who knows your ministry has seen that, that fact, that claim that you just made demonstrated over and over again. Exactly. If Jesus himself did not do one miracle until the Holy Spirit anointed him, how much more do we need the Holy Spirit in our lives? Think about he was a carpenter. 
Did he ever make crutches? And I don't know what he means by this. Did he ever make crutches? Did he ever make a casket? Is he saying, no, he didn't do that because he would have just healed the person or raised him from the dead? Or yeah. that he did make crutches and didn't always demonstrate his power to heal? Yeah, I know. That's a bizarre thing. That's... I don't know what he's saying. If the latter, he didn't always, we know he didn't always demonstrate his power to heal. You know, it says things like he didn't do many miracles here, right? right. Um, if he means the former, I don't see any reason to assume that that nobody in Israel died while Jesus was on earth, right? Like uh, at the very, I mean, that's just an argument from silence. And what would that prove? I mean, certainly later on when it comes to, you know, Jesus's disciples who did in fact do miracles, right? Paul, in speaking to Timothy, tells him to take some wine for his stomach. He doesn't say, ah, let me zap you free of your stomach ail. One trophy is sick. Right, yeah. So if that's the case, then okay well paul's not jesus yeah but paul is you know he is the apostle uh to the gentiles he is the one you know who has uh taken this gospel all around the world the fact that he you know if if, if there's somebody certainly i'm not above the apostle paul if there's somebody who's next in line to jesus um it's the apostle paul and if he could do miracles elsewhere why would he not be doing them them later on the notion that Jesus would never allow um, somebody who was uh, burdened with some sort of affliction persist in that affliction. It's just an argument from silence. I don't know. I don't know how it advances his point at all. Right. right. We probably never even thought about it. Did he ever make crutches for a little boy he could have healed? Did he ever make a casket for someone he could have raised from the dead? Yet he was waiting, the Bible says, until the fullness of time to manifest. So I told you he did miracles two ways, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by his personal relationship with God or with the Father. Look, watch this, how he raised Lazarus from the dead. Many people missed this. John 11, 41 and 42. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. See, this whole... Yeah. Okay. Um, so the, by, you know, either, either by the power of the spirit or by relationship with the father. So that's interesting to me. So are there, would he say that there are miracles that Jesus did not do by the power of the spirit, but by his relationship with the father? Um, you know, if, if so, that, that means that Jesus is, is this one who is full of the spirit without measure is sort of tapping into the spirit's power sometimes more than others. Uh, You know the the problem is, is the Holy Spirit dwells indwells him, um, you know, at, at all times. You know, is, is he anointed or not? Is he sometimes more anointed than other times? Right. The text never gives us reason to, to believe that. And then the relationship with the Father, in other words, he he prays to God and God heals him. But but again, right? Again, that's a predication of Jesus' humanity, and he's he's he, Jesus is flat out saying, "I'm doing this. I'm asking you this," um, because. I want to demonstrate to these people that I am from you, that I am not uh, some sort of rogue or phony, right? But that I am from God Almighty. Yeah. And 
And but and then I'm just thinking of like just a few passages later, a few chapters later, rather, in, in John chapter 14, where where uh you know Jesus is talking to Philip and Philip says, Show us the Father. And Jesus says, Have I been so long with you and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do do you not believe that I am in the Father? And the Father is in me. That is not a statement that is purely concerning Jesus' humanity. Maybe if he had said, the Father is in me and that's it, right? That means I'm sort of filled with the Father as a divine teacher. But right. to say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me is, is the doctrine of perichoresis, right? It's the doctrine right. of the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity with one another. The, you know, um, the fact for Jesus to say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Moses isn't making a uh, claim like that. Elijah's right. not making a claim like that. Um, right. You know, and then he says, the words I say to you, I did not speak from myself. The text says of my own initiative. I don't speak from myself, but the Father abiding in me does his works. So, and then, and then he'll say, believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, which is, is, is equivalent to saying, believe that I am God, because nobody else is in the Father and the Father in them. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. So what is he saying? He's saying the works that I'm doing are legitimate grounds for you to know that I am God, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, that there's such an equality of the two of us that I don't, I don't work of myself. I work from the Father, which is, which is, language that is reflective again of that eternal generation that eternal relation of godhood from jesus god jesus is god from the father he is the only begotten from the father and and so he's saying just as i was begotten from the father from all eternity so also i work from the father in the the mission of my incarnation so jesus quote unquote relationship with the father is is not something like well my relationship with the father is i can ask him for things and he'll give them to me jesus relationship with the father is i am in the father and the father is in me and he does works in me that identify me as an object of faith for god's people i am not an object of god's of, of faith for god's people you ought not to believe in me right, right. the angel says get up don't worship me right um jesus receives that worship and, right. and is happy to be called the object of the faith of God's people. Right. Okay. Oh, thing about God with us, let me just go a little bit further with it. God did not send someone to redeem you. He came himself to redeem you. And so, you know, the, the God did not send someone to redeem you. Okay, well, I've got a problem, right? So Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoptions of sons. So Galatians 4, 4 and 5 flat out says that God sent someone to redeem you. <laughs> um, now, God, God came to redeem you. Yes, God came. If you're referring to you know, God the son. God the came. son. God the Father sent God the Son. Now, again, we're talking about mutual indwelling, inseparable operations. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. 
the, the, there's a sense in which we could say God the Father came in the person of God the Son and in the power of God the Spirit. I get it. What I fear this man means is uh, God is not sending God, right? Yes. Like, I think that he's referring to the Father as God and Jesus as and the Son as Jesus, meaning to so distinguish them that when he says God came, I think he means the Father came. Yeah. And I think that he means the Father came by means of the mediation of this merely human Jesus, this once divine, but having laid aside his privileges, Jesus, um, in whom the Father works. Right. That, that is just, that's perilously close to modalism. Modalism, right. Yeah. That, that, if that's not modalism, it's, it's right up against the edge of it, that, it that Jesus is not God himself, um, but that G, in, in the man Jesus has manifested the, you know, the person of the Father, uh, who alone is God, is a unitary being as God, and and therefore the Son is just the, the manifestation of the one who is really God, i.e. the Father. Yes. Um, I want to ask more questions before I convict this guy of modalism, but given that he's already denied the deity of Jesus, uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me to learn that that's what he's after there. Right. No, I had the exact same thought. Absolutely. And that, that's, and see, the thing is that that's not anything unusual in this movement. That's right. pretty par for the course. So that is the natural assumption. And so then the question mean, becomes, okay, so if you're saying he's laid aside his deity when he was on earth, now he's no longer on earth. But, and so we, we can assume, therefore, that according to these people, he's regained his deity or reassumed his deity or reactivated it. Right. Well, if the reason that he can't be fully God on earth is so that he can be fully man, is he no longer then fully man now that he's fully God again? Exactly. Yeah. The answer of course is no, Jesus remains incarnate eternally. Uh, at the very, very least um, Colossians three, uh, is it three, two Colossians two, nine says, makes yeah. a predication of Jesus. This is Paul in the early sixties AD, right into the church in Colossae. For in him, that is Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells, present tense, in bodily form. So if 30 years after the ascension, all the fullness of deity dwells in Christ in bodily form, then the man Christ Jesus is forever, you you know, human and divine. The incarnation is eternal, or I should say everlasting. and. That means that you've got a canonic canonic Christology as a problem there in in saying, well, why then either you've got to deny the plain teaching of that text and so evince yourself a heretic, right? Or you've got to say um, that Jesus is uh, human and divine in heaven, but and that poses no problem uh, to each other, like his humanness poses no threat to his deity. But then you've got to answer then, well, why do you assume that his, his being fully human in his state of humiliation would be a threat to his deity? Uh, why couldn't he be both then if he's both now? Yeah. And there's no answer to that. Right. Absolutely. Okay. I think we have just like six seconds left, so we'll finish it out here. God didn't send someone with a message. He came with a message. Yeah. So just... That's, that's the end of the, so just wrapping up there. So, 
God sent God sent someone with a message and God came with a message, right? That's that's the whole point of uh, one God, three persons, is that God, Jesus is both the same what as the Father, but a distinct who yes. than the Father. And, and so God came and sent someone. Yes, indeed, indeed. Okay, Mike, so as we wrap up here, so what are... <laughs> I know how I would answer this. I'm pretty sure I'll answer it the same way. Uh, are we dealing here with eh, minor, minor differences here on person of Christ or is what we just heard objective Christological heresy? Uh, I mean, certainly the latter. There's not, e- there's not even a question that that is not Christianity. That, that is a uh, paganism with a uh, Christian dress uh, yes. language wrapped around it. Um, that there, if that's not heresy, nothing is heresy. There's no such thing as heresy. If that's not it, that, that is a violation of the oldest, most ancient confessions and creeds of our faith. Um, nobody throughout the history of the church would have recognized that as Christianity. They would have identified that as, as such a deviation as to be, um, it, you know, in certain times in history, ex, you know, excommunicated from, expelled from a city. Maybe right. even maybe even punished by some sort of capital punishment. You know, I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying that's right. how plain it would have been to yes. those in uh, in those days. Right. And you know, look, I understand that these things are high and mysterious and holy, and they're beyond our comprehension. But let not many of you become teachers, for as such we will incur a, a stricter judgment. Right. You you can't. I, I'm not ready to say. You know, I'm not ready to make a referendum on the guy's soul. He could be just badly, badly, badly mistaken and misled. Um, but then to assume the mantle of a pastor, of a teacher, and teach these things, that—that—that uh, that, that is a wolf, objectively. Right. And he's leading God's people astray. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that is a wolf. That is a wolf. Uh, manifestly unqualified from being in the pulpit correct manifestly unqualified from being in ministry that's right I, I would even i would even say permanently i think when you're at that level of teaching heresy as, as if it were truth and you don't know enough to know that that's the case that's the that's a level of reproach that's a level of lack of aptness to teach that the, yes. the, the first timothy 3 says is required for for elders and you know, the, the proper thing for that man to do is to step down, is yes. to repent of, of the heretical statements, to yes. be quietly study the matter and learn the historic Christian faith, the biblical Christian faith, and and content himself with being a student of the word uh, under qualified leadership for the rest of his days. He does not need to be in a pulpit. Yes. Amen. Amen to that. And it's it's not coincidental that Todd White has been a a guest preacher at his church. In fact, I believe Todd White even served for a time. This is the leg lengthening Todd White uh, mm-hmm. for, <laughs> served as a time as a as an elder at Gateway Church. And uh, there's a close connection there between. And Todd White teaches the exact same Christological errors what we just heard from Robert Morrison. Jesus healed the sick. He didn't do what he did as God. He did what he did as the Son of Man, possessed by God. 
When he came to this earth, he had to humble himself, become a bondservant, was tempted at all points, yet without sin. The Bible says it's impossible for God to be tempted. So what he's saying is he so limited himself, and he was, he was just like you and I. He became the son of man, born of the Virgin Mary, fully God and fully man, but laid his divinity aside while he was on this earth so that he could model what a Christian life would look like when you're fully possessed by God. And I would say that, um, you know, when you say you you, you can't make a, a, a judgment on the man's soul, I think you and I would both agree. If, if, if he is a believer and some, if he does see this video, which my guess is he, he probably will at some point, if he sees this video, if he's truly a believer, just extraordinarily immature, extraordinarily misguided, then his, once he sees the truth, then his repentance would be evidenced by him doing exactly what you just said, getting out of ministry. Absolutely. I mean, I I always want to leave open the opportunity. I mean, maybe not always, but I don't know anything. This is the first thing I've ever seen in this guy. And so it may very well be that, you know, he should be regarded as, you know, not, not a brother. Um, I think that's probably likely, you know, but I, I would want to hope and pray that it's, oh, wow, there's, there's a whole tradition of things that sees this another way. I, I guess what I want to do is I want to encourage somebody who may have been taught in that tradition and who, you know, says, oh, well, that's, well, that's what I preach, you know, and, and they may be uh, a genuine believer and make an appeal to Christ uh, of conscience for, for salvation through, through faith alone in Christ alone. And, and say, you know, oh, man, that, that's just stuff that I was confused about. Like, there's another, there's another, I'm missing this. I'm not speaking so much about Morrison as much as I'm speaking about the guy who finds himself, you know, the guy in, in a small church who finds himself holding that position because he was taught that by his Pentecostal charismatic friends. And yeah, this is what our camp believes, yeah. you know, that, yeah, maybe that guy. So, I mean, yeah. I don't want to seem soft or squishy on, on heresy. It's objective, formal heresy. Um, And, and if, if that is what this man genuinely believes in his heart, then he's, he's not a Christian. Amen. Yeah. And, and, and and look, just very quickly, you know, again, if, if you believe this teaching, then the second person of the Trinity was God and then was not God. And then was God again, at the very least, that's, that's a denial of the immutability of God, yeah. which is not Christianity, right? And so a Christ who was God, was then not God, and then was God again, is not God. That's right. And a, and a Christ who is not God is as different from a Christ that is God as, as can possibly be. There's no greater difference in the world between what is God and not God, the creator-creature distinction. Yeah. is is yeah. as divergent as you're going to get yeah. and so it's when paul says in second corinthians 11 4 if one comes and preaches another jesus yes. whom we have not preached or you receive yes. a different spirit which you've not received or a different gospel which you've not accepted he says to the corinthians mockingly you bear this beautifully a different jesus there is no more different jesus than a jesus who is god versus a jesus who is not god and, and so you can't get uh, and if you've got a different jesus you've got a different gospel and, and you can't be saved by that different gospel. And so that's why we say stuff like this. That's right. That's right. And that's why I tell people all the time that, the, you know, it's it's not enough to just, quote, believe in Jesus. Because 
Mormons believe in Jesus, Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Jesus, Muslims believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in the right Jesus. Yeah. You've got to believe in the right Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. And the Jesus that we just heard preached today by Robert Morris, one of the largest churches in the country, mm. uh, that is just as much a different Jesus as is the Jesus of Mormonism or Islam. Absolutely. Without question. Yes, indeed. Speaking of Mormonism, let me interject this here real quickly. Uh, Robert Morris, just about 11 years or so ago, uh, invited Glenn Beck to come and speak at his church, at Gateway Church. Uh, Glenn Beck, however, is a Mormon. He is a committed Mormon. Uh, he's, I'm sure, a very nice guy. He shares my conservative political uh, convictions, but he is a Mormon and is therefore not a Christian. But uh, watch this clip of Robert Morris as he's introducing Glenn Beck. Uh, I'm going to share with you just a moment. Before I do, I, I told you last evening, uh, Glenn Beck is here. And I've, I've met with Glenn uh, on a couple of occasions. And let me just say... Um, this man has a love for God that is so evident when you get to spend some time with him. Dear friends, there you just heard Robert Morris affirm Glenn Beck as a Christian, a man who loves God. Glenn Beck is a Mormon. He emphatically does not love God. He loves a false God. He loves an idol, not the God of the Bible. In Mormonism, God, God the Father, was a man who himself had a father and this was he was just a man and now he is an exalted man who lives on the planet Kolob with his wife spirit wife i mean this this is a cult mormonism is a cult so i have no doubt that that uh, glenn beck is sincere but sincerity is not the issue truth is the issue and so on top of everything we've said today uh, here is yet another reason why robert morris is unqualified and disqualified from being in the pulpit. Mike, thank you so much, brother, for helping us uh, walk through these issues and looking at this. Uh, I think this will be immensely helpful for a lot of people. Robert Morris is, is one of the most popular preachers in the country and arguably one of the more popular preachers around the world. His international ministry is certainly one of the most popular here in the United States. And as I said, he flies in under the radar a lot more readily than someone like a Kenneth Copeland does. And yet what we've just heard, every bit as dangerous and heretical as Kenneth Copeland, one of the most obvious heretics and charlatans ever to disgrace the name of Christ. Right. Uh, so, Mike, as we close, brother, where can we get some more reasons? What do you have available for people? You've written some books and articles. Where can people get more of your preaching and teaching resources. Yeah, well, for just me in general, my sermons are available at the, the gracelifepulpit.com, thegracelifepulpit.com, and uh, also on the, the, Grace, the Grace Community Church website, gracechurch.org. Um, I've written a couple of small books, one called Sanctification, The Christian's Pursuit of God-Given Holiness, and another one called The Forest and the Trees, uh, sort of basic biblical interpretation. And both of those are available through gracebooks.com, gracebooks.com. And uh, you can find links to those on my Twitter account. It's my pinned tweet. Um, 
and then just recently published a book called To Save Sinners. It was my doctoral dissertation on the extent of the atonement. Yeah, that's published by Whipfinstock. You can get that on Amazon or directly from the Whipfinstock uh, publisher's website. And um, with respect to what I've written on this topic uh, in particular, I've got a sermon, uh, a couple sermons on Philippians 2. You know, you could always go to there at the Grace Life Pulpit and, and see them. And then uh, in, specifically, I've written an article for the, the Master Seminary Journal in the spring of 2019, I think, uh, called Veiled in Flesh the Godhead Sea, uh, a study of the kenosis of Christ. That, of course, is a, a line from the, the Christmas Carol, Hark the Herald, um, yes. spring 2019. And it's uh, sort of a, really, it is a, a basic study of the failures of evangelical theology to grapple with the implications of these truths and trying to sort of recover a classical Christology that avoids the error of kenoticism, both as I mentioned earlier, ontological kenoticism, like we heard today, and functional kenoticism, which is sort of a, a light version, the light beer version of, of this particular error um, that many, uh, who, many respected teachers in, under the banner of evangelicalism teach. And it's, it's not, that version isn't necessarily heretical, I suppose it could be, but it is, it is definitely aberrant and heterodox. And, um, and it was certain, it's certainly popular and has held sway in latter half of 20th century theology that needs a correction. The best resource on battling canonic Christology that I know of has been Stephen Wellam's book, God the Son Incarnate. Uh, so Dr. Stephen Wellam is professor of theology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he, he published a book, I think, in 2017 called God the Son Incarnate. It is just a, a inter intermediate Christology, maybe, and deals very heavily with the error of canonic Christology in a way that will bless you if you read it. Excellent. Okay, fantastic. Uh, I will be checking that book out too, because I have your books, but I don't have that one yet, so I will. All right. Mike, thank you so much, brother. Appreciate you, your preaching ministry, your friendship. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, brother. Always a pleasure. Okay, dear ones. Well, I hope this has been helpful for you. And uh, again, we do this because we, we care about people. We care about the truth, teach sound doctrine, refute those who contradict. These are eternal matters of eternal consequences. And so if you are, um, if you have been listening to Robert Morris, or maybe you have a friend, maybe you have a family member who maybe goes to this church because it's enormous or watches him, please, please send this video to them. And um, by God's grace, it will bring them out of this very, very dangerous deception. Until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or interested in more teaching resources, or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.